Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You know, when your own political views skew to the left, it really is a joy to find a conservative writer whose writing you appreciate and whose reasoning strikes you as interesting. So I've been looking forward to the columns of Ross Douthat in the New York Times for quite some time, and then when I discovered all of his Connecticut connections, I started looking forward to having him on the show. But that didn't happen for a long time. But he's on the show today, and we're recording this show, doing this show on January 6th, which is also very interesting. But the first thing we're going to talk about is not any of that, but a disease that has shadowed Ross Douthat's recent life, a disease that's tricky to diagnose and equally difficult to treat. And no, it's not COVID-19. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Yes, we are talking today about walking through a valley of pain. That is for sure. Uh, Before we get into that, though, let me just say a couple of different things here, a little bit of stage setting more than I usually do. It just is it's an oddity. We happen to be doing this show live on the air on January 6th. Uh, I know some of you who, who get the podcast, you get, you get it whenever, but that's kind of when it's happening. Uh, and it's also made me think about the fact, I was just reminded by one of the producers that last year on January 6th, we were talking to a, 
Uh, we're going to talk to someone named Ross today. Last January 6th, we were talking to Ross Garber, uh, a favorite on our show, uh, uh, a legal impeachment expert, uh, and for a long time, a very reasonable and likable and delightful uh, Connecticut Republican political figure. Uh, and so, obviously, we're just going to, I don't know, with David Schwimmer next year, is he the Ross guy on Friends? Uh, we have to figure out uh, how to have a Ross every January 6th. So, um, with that... Let's talk to this Ross. Uh, Ross Douthat is a columnist for The New York Times. Uh, I've been a longtime fan, even though uh, I lean left. Uh, I very much enjoy his writing. It's very persuasive. It turns out to be persuasive on, on fronts that I had not anticipated because we're going to begin our conversation today with this very interesting, gripping, and unsurprisingly, given that it's Ross Douthat, really well written, re- really well written in the new book, The Deep Places, A Memoir of Illness and Discovery. So Ross Douthat, Welcome to our airwaves. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm not sure that I can compete with David Schwimmer's future appearance <laughs> in twenty in 2023, followed by the ghost of Ross Perot in 24. Ooh, yeah, Ross Perot. I'll do my best. Yeah. So um, before we get plunged into the book, I have to ask you what I regard as the most important question, a question which I have been seeking resolution on for quite a few years now. Were you or were you not in a New Haven youth production of a Gilbert and Sullivan show that possibly also included Lauren Ambrose, she of six feet under. Yes, I was. <laughs> All right. All right. You can absolutely 100 percent the case. All right. Witness dismissed uh, trial. No, um, I, I did one. So uh, what was the musical? It was the Pirates of Penzance. Ah. Um, and she was Mabel, yeah. which was a, you know, the major the major female lead. Yeah. And I was uh, the second policeman, which meant that I had one line uh, that I delivered with, you know, great elan that sent me on a on a path to Broadway and Hollywood and everything else. Right. It was unresolved whether your life was not an happy one. Uh, (laughs) We still don't know. So but we do know things about whether your life was a happy one or not, because that segues us very nicely into the deep places. So for people who don't know kind of the, the, you know, what we're talking about here, uh, um, I don't know. You want to give a quick thumbnail here? Sure. So um, this is a book about what happened to me and my family when we fulfilled what was our lifelong dream and escaped from the swampy corruption of Washington, D.C. and moved back to Connecticut um, almost seven years ago now, which is where I am from, as you mentioned, you know, a veteran of the New Haven youth theater scene. And my wife was from a different part of Connecticut, closer to New York, and our families were here. And we had this you know, very New England fantasy where we were going to buy a house in the country and, um, you know, live in harmony with nature, raise chickens, watch our kids play in the fields, all these kind of things. Um, And we did it. We bought a 1790s farmhouse um, in about an hour and a half from New York. It had barns, it had fields, it had everything that we imagined. And unfortunately, In the period between when we closed on the house uh, and when we actually moved from D.C. up to Connecticut, I became extremely ill with a sickness that basically none of the doctors in D.C. had any idea what to do about. So I spent sort of a few months as a classic medical mystery case where I had pain all over my body. I was having, you know, phantom heart attacks, sending me to the emergency room. I was sleeping for an hour a night. Uh, I lost 40 pounds in two months. And it was only when we somehow dragged ourselves to our 
dream house in, here in here in Connecticut in the country that I started seeing doctors who said, oh, this looks like, you know, the great the great scourge of the Connecticut woods, um, Lyme disease. And so at that point, uh, the story passes from its medical mystery phase into its medical controversy phase, because as I'm sure many of your listeners know, um, the question of how to treat Lyme disease, especially if it persists, as mine did for more than you know, the span of a four-week antibiotic course is incredibly contested and controversial. And you have sort of warring schools of medical thought. You have sort of an official CDC view that says if you've treated it for four to six weeks, that's basically all you can do. And you just have to sit and wait till you get better. Um, and lots of people don't get better. And then you have a group of sort of outsider doctors, many of them in this state and around the Northeast who say, no, you actually, it's kind of a wild disease. It, you know, gets in everywhere. It suppresses your immune system, escapes antibiotics, and you have to treat it aggressively with combinations of drugs and all kinds of things. And eventually that's what I did. I did some stranger things too. And I very, very gradually um, recovered to the point where I'm probably you know, at about 90% today after being about 25% of my former self. Um, but so, yeah, so it's a medical mystery and controversy story with a sort of Stephen King element where, <laughs> you know, we had this, we had this house, you know, this house in the woods that was supposed to be, supposed to be our dream house and became our Overlook Hotel. And without giving too much away. We are now live in walkable urbanism in New Haven and left that experience, that country experience behind. So, yeah, um, uh, the Stephen King thing you mentioned in the in the book, I think, having maybe read The Stand uh, one or two many uh, too many times uh, prior to having this happen. But yeah, the in terms of this being the house, Gene, can we play uh, A1 here? And are you concerned about me? <laughs> Of course you are. <laughs> ever thought about my responsibilities? Oh, Dick, what are you talking about? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Has it ever occurred to you that I have agreed to look after the Overlook Hotel until May the 1st? Does it matter to you at all? that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract, in which I have accepted that responsibility. You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? Has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future if I were to fail to live up to my responsibilities? Has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Stay away from me. Why? I just want to go back to my room. All right. So it didn't get that bad, first of all. <laughs> but there's a way in which, yeah, I mean, at the beginning of the book, we're reading about this. This really is kind of a dream house. Uh, I subsequently read uh, some uh, uh, writing by your wife, Abby, where I think she <laughs> refers to it as our decrepit farmhouse. <laughs> um, so a lot of that is just sort of affected by by our situations. But I mean, you know, me, uh, the, the Shining is not obviously a really good representation of what you're going through. But I think it also does bring up a thing that I've been living with in my life because I have two people in my life who are very, very seriously ill for quite a long time now. Uh, and that is, you know, there's your story, which you tell very, very compellingly. 
Um, but then there's the story of your wife, uh, of your uh, nuclear family, of your extended family. Uh, and, 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 you know, when somebody's sick, it's not really quite true that everybody's sick, but everybody's kind of sick. They're sick adjacent, right? Yeah. I mean, my, my wife, who is a big fan of your show, um, the, in a way, I hope she's not listening because we would have needed to give a trigger warning before that <laughs> clip. Um, because, no, it wasn't that bad. But, uh, you know, we I'm a writer. Right. She's a writer, too. So it's like the shining, but a two writer household. And, you know, with there's sort of the general reality of that any kind of chronic illness imposes huge burdens on the people closest to the sick person. And then there's the specific reality that if you have one of these illnesses like chronic Lyme disease that is medically contested, where there's tons of uncertainty about it, where there's lots of people who are quick to say, oh, it's in your head, it's psychosomatic and these kind of things, there's sort of a base, a baseline uncertainty for the sick person themselves, but also for the people closest to them about like, what kind of shape are they really in? Right. Like when my husband tells me he's going to the coffee shop, you know, in, you know, and he's in this kind of pain that nobody can measure or see on blood tests. And he claims he's writing. Am I going to look over his shoulder and see all work and no play makes Ross a dull boy. Right. Like, I mean, this it's, it, there, there really is this element where, um, you're sort of, you know, the, the, the people closest to you are struggling to figure out how to help you, but they're also sort of imprisoned with you in this very distinctive and very, very difficult, extraordinarily difficult um, kind of way. And that's something that, you know, I, I think the, the question of how you help someone you're close to who is going through this kind of thing is a really important question, but so is the question of how, if you're an intimate relationship, how you preserve your own sanity and your own well-being and prevent yourself from becoming just sort of a second victim of this kind of experience. So meanwhile, once it's established that you, you are dealing with Lyme disease, you see a whole series of medical professionals who in the book are given names that sound like kind of minor Marvel Cinematic Universe characters. <laughs> There's the reassurer and the magnetizer and Maverick <laughs> and and the equalizer. No, there's no equalizer. But um, That's for the sequel. That's the when sequel. I, when I get my revenge against right. the ticks. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and what's happening is because there isn't kind of medical scientific consensus and in a way that kind of mirrors some of our national dilemmas over over the last two years, the CDC's understanding of this is seems a little primitive and under nuanced, uh, and and so you're you wind up basically um, favoring some of these medical professionals over the other ones, but also kind of taking your treatment into your own hands, doing your own research, doing stuff that probably if you'd been told two years ahead of time that you'd be doing it, you you would have laughed off this idea, right? You, at a certain point, you went into what conceivably to the reader may seem like cloud cuckoo land. Yeah. I mean, so so there's basically sort of, there's a core scientific question here, right? Which is, does Lyme disease persist in people? Does the bacteria persist and can it be treated 
long-term with these complex cocktails of antibiotics? And I think the evidence there is very, very strong that the answer is yes. And I don't just mean my sort of personal experience where this is sort of was sort of the core thing I did to get better. Um, but we do actually have a lot of data and research at this point suggesting that the, that sort of chronic theory of Lyme is actually correct. So that's sort of the part of my story where, you know, I think that the re I, I want the reasonable reader to come away saying, okay, these outsider doctors, these mavericks, they're actually doing good science. They're serious doctors. They're onto something. This is real and should be taken seriously. But then the other reality of an illness like this is that when you don't get better from something that is incredibly debilitating, I was in pain, you know, effectively 24 hours a day. Um, there, you, you, your risk, your cost benefit calculus <laughs> changes. Your willingness to not just try weird cocktails of antibiotics, but to try absolutely anything increases. And so people who have chronic illnesses try all kinds of things. And I was no exception. And being truthful, telling that story truthfully, which I try and do in the book, means acknowledging that, you know, you're you're doing this sort of core antibiotic treatment, but you're also having a chiropractor put magnets on different parts of your body, right? You're getting sort of pumped full of intravenous vitamin C under, you know, a wall of tarot cards, um, the tarot cards were just sort of decoration, <laughs> to be clear. They weren't literally, I think, <laughs> supposed to make vitamin C work. Um, or you buy what's called a Rife machine, which is uh, basically a strange 1980s looking sci-fi box that is supposed to generate sound frequencies that shatter bacteria the way an opera singer's voice at the right note can shatter a glass of wine. Um, and this stuff is all from the perspective of official medical science on the pseudoscientific fringe. Um, but then, you know, when you try some of these things, you discover that some of them actually seem to work, which is both important to report and acknowledge, but also something that, you know, for people sort of trying to assess the truth of your story can be a reason to doubt the whole thing, to say, oh, you know, Douthat says this antibiotic treatment worked for him, but he also said that he successfully shattered bacteria with sound waves. So, you know, what am I to believe? So right. there's a tension, I think, between being maximally persuasive and maximally honest. Um, and the book, you know, it airs on the side of honesty, I think. Right. Now that I know that your wife, Abby, is a fan of the show, I plan to take her side on every major question uh, that comes up in this book. And 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 the Rife machine is, if there's sort of a Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall moment in this story, yes. it might be the Rife machine because you brought it into the, to the house, Ross, <laughs> without actually telling her. This is the, 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 the shatter the microbes machine. You, you brought yes. it in there without necessarily declaring it at customs, as, uh, as we might say. Yes, it was a it it was sort of a condensed symbol of her Shelley Duvall style fears about my Jack Nicholson style behavior, um, and re reasonably so. And knowing that, I thought, well, I'll try it and see if it has any effect before <laughs> before I mention it to her. Um, and and was, I, I want to say you're such a persuasive writer that I have three or four pages in, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I should get myself one of these things. This <laughs> sounds like a... <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. Because, you know, Big Rife Machine has... They, I'm bought and paid for by them. Yeah. So... 
So I'm doing I'm doing my part to spread to spread the gospel. But yes, for the most part, the machine, unlike the antibiotics, you know, has been sort of consigned to our attic and is not, you know, it's it's not sort of something that's supposed to be part of our normal domestic life. So, and we, I don't want to harp on this, but I just do want to say this is all in part of what you describe as, I think, your reckless self-dosing phase. And, and this includes, you know, antibiotic treatments and other stuff under the supervision of various doctors of various stripes. But it also just includes you deciding, you know, I'm going to take three more of these. Uh, yeah. I mean, at a certain point, you become kind of a law unto yourself, at least in terms of your own private medical condition. And I, I don't know. How does that, I don't know, when you read the book now, when you think about the book now, how does that, does that still feel like the, uh, it feels like an understandable way to go. Does it feel like the right way to go? Not, I, I mean, I think I, I say in the book that this was, that I behaved recklessly at various times. Yes. And put more things into my body, antibiotics, herbs, enzymes, you know, the whole kitchen cabinet of things, then as, you know, if I had been, if I had been a doctor supervising a patient, I would not have considered that a wise way to go. Um, and it's sort of, you know, the, it's basically a testament, I think, to just the desperation that you feel in a situation where you're trying to, you're trying to get better and escape pain. You're trying to be a good husband, sort of stop being the Jack Nicholson character, return to your normal self. You're trying to be a good father. And um, I, what I do think is true is, and I think this is borne out in a lot of people's experience with this kind of disease, that you know, often it really is the case that higher doses of things with this sort of intractable conditions are are helpful. Um, so in a general sense, I think upping the dosages at that point was the right thing and helped me get better faster. But the recklessness with which I did it was not the right thing. So you know, this is um, in many ways a, a very Connecticut book. Uh, it's about two different Connecticut homes of yours. Uh, it's about a disease that bears the name of a Connecticut town. It's about, we did a show this summer about Plum Island. You devoted a chapter to Plum Island, which is this you know, bio research facility uh, out on Long the, Island, the Sound. laboratory in Long Island Sound. Yep. Yeah, um, and and there is sort of a way in which you're describing a culture, right? It's it it is it's like when you got up here to Connecticut, all the stuff that you were talking about, there were just more ears, more willing ears. There's a way in which we both accept the prevalence of Lyme disease up here, but also maybe have our own private opinions. You know, maybe some of the chronic. Uh, Lyme people are, you know, I'm psychosomatic or it's something else or, I mean, there's enough noise and chatter uh, and some signal among it. So it feels like Connecticut's a slightly different place to have this whole experience than than a lot of other places in the country would be. Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting to us because, again, you know, we had both grown up here in somewhat different parts of the state, but both of us had had plenty of sort of outdoors experiences um, and it, it really did feel coming back, you know, obviously getting sick was a crucial part of this, but it, it did feel like Lyme disease had become a much bigger thing um, in Connecticut and in New England generally, you know, at this point in 2020 than it was in, you know, 1993 or something when we were teenagers. And that's that's borne out, I think, in statistics on the diseases prevalence and spread a lot more people get it now or, or are likely to get it um, than was the case 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but there is what what there is is this strange scenario, strange situation where 
having the disease and becoming one of these weird chronic cases, it, there is kind of a secret handshake effect where you tell people about it. And I, you know, I told a lot of people about it, even I didn't write about it in my day job, but, you know, I, I lost my filter, you could say, in everyday conversation. So anyone who met me when I was at my worst would get an earful about Lyme disease. And, you know, you get an earful back and every, it seemed like everybody had some kind of story where, you know, it was, it was hard to meet someone whose family hadn't been touched somewhere somehow, not just by getting Lyme disease, but knowing someone who was sick for a while, who lost a year of high school, who, you know, sort of fell off a cliff and took a long time to get better. Um, and it was interesting because this was sort of still this kind of subterranean phenomenon where then if you went to, uh, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the general practitioner doctor and asked, asked them about chronic Lyme disease, they would be very skeptical, right? They would have sort of the, the skeptics view of it, the view that it's mostly people, um, you know, sort of having some kind of psychogenic sort of follow on from an infection or something that's still incredibly powerful among a lot of mainstream medical practitioners, even in this world where right next door to them, there are people sort of taking for granted that chronic Lyme disease is a big part of Connecticut life. So these these two worlds sort of exist in parallel in a way that, again, had never sort of been something that, you know, our teenage understanding of Lyme disease had, had really prepared us for. As teenagers, it was like, you know, you got the bullseye rash and you took antibiotics and that was sort of the story of Lyme disease that, that everybody told yeah, Again, I mean, in 1997. Yeah, and it's still. I mean, I don't know. I I have a dog. I'm out a lot. I get ticks uh, on my body that bite me. Uh, I call up. I get the doxycycline. It's almost uh, a motor skill at this point. Uh, but but yeah, there's a lot more sitting under it. Now, I I think I need to take a break here. There's, it's I, I want to on the other side of the break just talk about how all of the things that you experienced and the ways in which your your mind may have changed uh, about certain things then mapped on to five years into this year, we hit the COVID crisis and, uh, and you're sort of oddly battle-hardened at that point. But let's uh, take our break first and we'll come back. We'll talk about that. Let me sweep it out of my bitterness Born of grief and nights without sleep String flesh. Do you have eyes? Can you see like man can see? Why have you soured and curdled me? All right. So we're back. Uh, I'm with Ross Douthat, a New York Times columnist. Uh, his book, The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery, uh, chronicles in a very beautiful and, and gripping way uh, his uh, wrestle, wrestling with Lyme disease uh, and with treatments for Lyme disease and flawed understandings uh, of Lyme disease. Uh, and there's so much I would love to talk to, you, talk to you about, and we're not going to have time for all of it. I would love to Maybe on a future show, we can talk about faith and, and, and how it kind of turns up in this book. But I do want to talk to you about, as I said, you know, five years into this, uh, COVID comes along. And in a way, you know, 
hydroxychloroquine, you've been there, done that. And there's a lot of this stuff that you already know. And you also, I think, already know or have a sense that maybe the federal biosciences bureaucracy isn't going to do everything right. You feel like the CDC never quite understood Lyme disease. So I don't know how, how spoiler, you got COVID, your whole family got COVID, you got it early on. But um but I, I don't know, how, how did your experience with Lyme disease map onto your understanding of COVID? Well, in, in part with COVID, you can basically see this kind of super accelerated version of what a lot of chronic illness looks like, where instead of this sort of mysterious disease spreading slowly and, you know, being misunderstood gradually and sort of creating chronic cases over years and decades, it all happens at once. And, you know, sort of the, the medical bureaucracy is responding to, you know, a pandemic that is of massive proportions. Um, it's, you know, much more immediately, obviously, a matter of life and death than a lot of chronic illnesses are. But you also very quickly get lots and lots of people with so-called long COVID. Um, and so, you you know, you have you have this sort of instantly created chronic illness debate that very quickly takes on a lot of the same contours um, as as the Lyme disease debate um, with the slight difference, I think, and maybe not slight difference, but that because it happened so suddenly and also because a lot of frontline medical workers, doctors and nurses um, get exposed to COVID and have sort of long-term symptoms, there is a little more, I think, sort of belief and understanding around the condition than there has been for chronic fatigue syndrome, Lyme disease, a lot of these things in the past. Um, so that's that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that there's, you know, there's sort of this this balancing act, I think, that I have tried to maintain after my Lyme disease experience that I think is actually really hard to maintain, right? Which is that once you've had an experience where you get sick and the medical system doesn't seem able to help you, it's very easy to assume that therefore the medical system is always wrong and always corrupt. And, you know, the outsiders are the ones who always have the answers. Um, and in fact, that isn't true either. The, the reality has to be somewhere in between. The medical system gets big things right, but then it also misses big things. And I think you've seen that totally with COVID, where there have been all kinds of sort of confident sounding statements from the CDC or the World Health Organization that have had to be walked back or abandoned. You have all of this sort of confusion around, you know, sort of guidance and protocols and so on. There, there's a lot of examples of how the public health bureaucracy and sort of institutional science just struggle to deal with the complexity of reality. At the same time, a lot of, you know, a lot of the critiques of that bureaucracy have been sort of paranoid and conspiratorial. And, you know, I, I, I guess the best way to distill this is I'm the guy who, you know, has the weird rife machine in my attic, but I'm also the guy who, you know, got the COVID vaccine without worrying too much about it. I worried a little because once you've had my kind of experiences, you can't help it. But somewhere there's a balance there, right? That where, you don't want to just sort of trust blindly in capital S science and everything that official medicine tells you, but you also don't want to ignore the, the gifts that institutional science generates among them, a you know, rapidly developed vaccine that really has saved a lot of lives. 
Yeah, and I think as journalists, this is a struggle for us too, because you know, in a way, I I have come to share some of your frustration with the federal bureaucracy's handling of this, particularly at the level of communication. I mean, they they overcommunicate about uh, things that they really don't know for sure. So you've got uh, some early stuff about masks that turns out to be the wrong way to talk about masks. You've got early stuff about asymptomatic transmission, uh, which it turns out to be wrong. Uh, uh, you've got uh, an emphasis on droplet uh, transmission. We now realize airborne is a, a much bigger factor. Uh, and in a way, the way that the vaccines were going to work was not really uh, understood well or explained well. I've, obviously, they confer tremendous uh, protection against hospitalization and death and uh, expression of severe symptoms. They don't limit spread. You have to do something else to limit spread. And I feel like all of that stuff, even if you wanted to know about it and you weren't some you know, fringe kind of person, at a certain point, you could wind up, you will wind up very confused because they're not good at saying, excuse me, hold on, we got something wrong and we need to explain something in a completely different way than we did before. It's it's like they don't want to do it. And I think as journalists, we don't want to do it or we're, we're kind of reluctant to do it because we don't want to feed that 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 cycle uh, and that group of people who say, see, the scientific people, they don't know anything. Don't trust the science. They don't know what they're doing. I don't know yeah, why I expect this, you to say there's, that. There's a fear that if you... I think the fear in the establishment is that if you acknowledge error, you open the door to sort of quacks and cranks. And the fear of journalists, it's often more if you acknowledge ambiguity, mm-hmm. right? If if you say, you know, well, the, the vaccines seem to work really well, but there are big questions about, you know, you know, whether their effectiveness diminishes long term or the vaccines work really well, but people with prior immunity, you know, may be almost as well protected or something like there's a there's a fear that if you do that, like extra thing, you undercut the first statement. And sometimes maybe you do. But, you know, the profession is supposed to be committed to the truth. And I I think journalists especially have maybe end up worrying too much well, I think public health officials definitely have spent too much time sort of worrying about like amateur psychology. And if we say this, how will people react this way in lieu of just sort of, you know, being fully honest and recognizing that in some ways as an official, that's all you can do. Right. And I think we both probably feel that the only way that the Lyme, the Lyme disease mess could have been a messier mess than it already is, is if the primary communication had come from elected officials, that if the main spokesperson about Lyme disease in Connecticut was Ned Lamont or all the, any of the preceding governors, and then that were true across the other 49 states and also at the national level, it's bad enough that the CDC and its doctors have trouble communicating with us about this. But the idea that you know everything kind of flows through governors you know, and 40 to 45 to 50 percent of the population of any state probably doesn't believe anything that its elected governor says <laughs> or, or is disinclined anyway. So that's that's a, a, a secondary or maybe a primary layer of problems. Right. And you you see this with sort of this, you know, the swings from how people react <laughs> to statements about covid from Donald Trump versus versus Joe Biden. But there is then also a way in which you know, a certain set of decisions that have to be made about COVID are fundamentally sort of questions that are not just scientific questions. It's a question of, you know, balancing competing goods. Like, how do you figure out, how do you balance 
the risks of transmission in schools against the massive costs to kids of shunting them into you know, remote learning. That's not fundamentally a scientific question. It's a question that really only governors and school superintendents and parents and everyone else can answer. So there is, there's a certain, I think some politicians have wanted to sort of pass the buck back to the scientists, right? <laughs> to say, we're making these political decisions, but really they're, we're just, you know, Anthony Fauci is really the one in charge. Um, although I, I think Lamont has done, you know, a, a better job than some governors in this part of the country in this regard. <laughs> All right. Um, so I know I've, I've been wanting to talk to Ross Douthat for so long. Now I have Ross Douthat on my show on January 6th, which is weird. <laughs> um, and and today, you know, President Biden gave, uh, uh, you know, an unusually, I think, confrontational speech using some pretty heated language uh, about the kind of epistemic crisis that we're in, uh, the understanding of the situation that we're in. And, and he didn't really mince words about who he blamed for all this. Very quickly, Gene, let's play B1, just get a little flavor of this for people who didn't hear it yet. This isn't about being bogged down in the past. It's about making sure the past isn't buried. That's the only way forward. That's what great nations do. They don't bury the truth. They face up to it. Sounds like hyperbole, but that's the truth. They face up to it. We are a great nation. My fellow Americans, in life there's truth, and tragically there are lies. Lies conceived and spread for profit and power. We must be absolutely clear about what is true and what is a lie. And here's the truth. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. Yeah, what did you think? I mean, I'm probably preempting the next column you're going to write, but I'm a subscriber. So, um, I, you know, this was unusually confrontational, I, I think, for Biden. And it was like he, a marker he seemed to feel like he needed to lay down today. How did that work for you? I mean, I think Biden is really comfortable in this terrain <laughs> with sort of, you know, seeing himself as the foe and foil of, of Trump himself. So I, I wasn't particularly surprised that he went at the subject that way. I, I think the challenge is that, you know, first, Biden's correct, right? Like Trump told a lot of lies about the 2020 election. And there are a lot of people, you know, I'm conservative, so there are people on my side of a lot of debates who, you know, who who think who think that the the last election was stolen in, you know, in a fairly literal way when it was not. Um, and, you know, there are sort of nuances within that reality. There, you know, it was an election held under super weird pandemic circumstances with a lot of rule changes. There's sort of legitimate debates about that. Um, but the basic sort of stop the steal argument was founded on a falsehood. I think the challenge for, I would say, for Democrats, but really for everybody, right, is that the linkage here to, you know, sort of centering things on the riot on January 6th makes it seem, I think, prime more like the challenge for the next four years or whenever here is this sort of 
challenge of of lawlessness, of political violence, right? Which I, I don't think is actually the challenge, or, or it doesn't seem, I mean, I, I think January 6th was, as much as Donald Trump enjoyed watching it, it was not actually something that he planned. The riot itself was sort of, you know, there were people in the riot who were there to riot, but then there were lots of people who were effectively tourists and along for the ride. And there was this sort of catastrophic breakdown in capital security, without which we wouldn't be having any of these conversations. And so if you're thinking for the future, for 2024, right, for what are the challenges in the future, the challenges are more sort of technical and procedural. They're, you know, challenges around the Electoral Count Act and sort of the, the you know, the opportunities it creates for a constitutional crisis. And that that's sort of, and similarly, questions of sort of authority over elections at the state level. Um, and I think it's totally possible that America could, you know, sort of blunder into a constitutional crisis in the near future with Trump's sort of style of lying being a powerful force in taking us there. Um, I'm not sure that sort of the image of the guy dressed as a Viking on the floor of the U.S. Senate is actually the right place, is sort of the right thing to be looking at, I guess, when we think about how we would avoid it. It's more a question of, you know, sort of how we how we manage elections and how we have this sort of, you know, antiquated process that nobody really understands of how electoral votes are counted in Congress. And there's just sort of endless questions about like, you know, if a, if a, if a future secretary of state in Georgia or Pennsylvania refused to cert, refuses to certify an election, what happens? Mm -hmm. That's, that's the most important question I think that this day raises. And it's a little bit obscured by the riot itself. All right. We're uh, talking to Ross Douthat. Uh, we're going to take a break. I could talk about this all day or the Lyme disease all day. Um, but it turns out the other thing Ross wants to talk about is movies. So we're going to do that after this. We're back um, very quickly. Uh, uh, Kat Pastor, our technical producer, is not around today. So technical producer for this show today. It's a little bit like saying, geez, we don't have a pilot available for the Starfighter. Do you think Yoda would be willing to do it? I mean, we went to, we got Yoda, basically, um, or the Yoda. I'm not quite sure. Uh, anyway, Gina Matruda, who's like the big the big dog here. He's a technical producer for the show today. So senior producer Emeritus Betsy Kaplan is the episode producer. Jonathan McPants is in the background helping out with stuff. We're talking to Ross Douthat. And yeah, actually, it does make sense to talk about culture with uh, Ross Douthat in, in the context of a somewhat political conversation. In fact, even as we're talking, they're having their January 6th thing uh, in Washington, and, and part of uh, Nancy Pelosi's part of this apparently was a performance by Lin-Manuel Miranda and members of the cast of Hamilton, and she said the arts are, are part of this conversation. Uh, so uh, even when you're talking about a riot, I don't know. But anyway, so... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is not... We can talk about... The, I just... This is sort of what I mean, right? That like 
American democracy faces a particular challenge that is a challenge of election administration under conditions of hyperpolarization where the leader of the Republican Party is Donald Trump and he's willing to lie about a lot of things. That's a big challenge. It's not I don't see how it's helped by turning the Capitol riot into this weird like, you know, Hamilton <laughs> Hamilton review civic commemoration, right? Like the, the what what made the riot distinctive was the fact that Donald Trump was, you know, that the actual president was telling lies about who won the election. But it, it wasn't like Pearl Harbor or 9-11 or something. Anyway, that's, that's, <laughs> I'm just, I, I'm, yeah. The Hamilton stuff, I, I just, I, I, I think it's a mistake, but. All right. So, so meanwhile, you're worried about movies. We're worried about movies too. <laughs> we talk about this on the show a lot. I'm worried about the death of comedies. I don't think there are any real comedies uh, anymore. Everything's neither fish nor fowl. It's kind of everything serial comic. Uh, you, you have other worries. Uh, what are they? Well, that's part of it, right? That so, I mean, basically, my worry is that the Amer- American movies, as a mass art form that's culturally influential and provides sort of, you know, entertainment for adults, is just going to die. Um, and this is being accelerated by COVID, which is, you know, creating a situation that is where um, sort of older older moviegoers are much less likely to go to the movies than even they were before. And it's just sort of accelerating a process where all of Hollywood becomes essentially a factory for producing superhero movies and some other sci-fi blockbusters. Um, And the kind of movies that were sort of normal movies in the 1980s and 1990s just don't get made anymore. Or they get made on Netflix. They get sent direct to streaming. Sometimes they're still good. There are, you know, there are comedies on Netflix, right? There, there are comedies here and there um, that show up, but there's no equivalent to, uh, you know, the kind of, well, I mean, comedy, romance, even, even the sort of, you know, diehard style action movie, all of these genres that we sort of took for granted as moviegoers when I was growing up um, are, are basically on their way out as theatrical entertainment. And yeah. all that's left is Spider-Man. There is a self-infantilizing process here. I mean, if you if you go back even further, the top 1960s box office films were The Sound of Music, The Graduate, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, My Fair Lady, 2001, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, I'm just going down the list, Lawrence of Arabia, Midnight Cowboy, um, uh, and in the seventies, it starts to get a. You start to get the Star Wars movies creeping in, and some Superman. But you still got you know some movies that are sort of made for. One flew over the cuckoo's nest is one of the big seventies. Kramer versus Kramer, American Graffiti. You've got those kind of on at least sort of a long list of top box office movies. And and in this decade, in the past decade, the twenty tens. I mean, the top movies are Star Wars Episode Seven, Avengers, Black Panther, Avengers, different Avengers, Jurassic World, another Avengers, Star Wars, The Incredibles 2, The Lion King, Rogue One, Beauty and the Beast. I can read the top 24 box office movies and not come to a movie that's, you know, that deals with adult themes the way, say, Midnight Cowboy or Guess Who's Coming to Dinner would. And so we've kind of become kids. Yeah. And I mean, even those 70s blockbusters, right, there's this sort of narrative of cinematic decline that says, well, you know, it started with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Um, If you go back and watch Jaws, 
right? Jaws is a movie for adults. They're all these adults. They're always they're always having these arguments, right? There's like it's it's you know it's sort of obviously there's a killer shark and there's a lot of action in in the movie, but it just plays completely differently from what we think of as a a blockbuster today. And it's it really I mean as late as like if you go back to 1999, that's sort of I think the last really great year for movies. And then it, there's this combination of factors of part of it is special effects just get much better. So it becomes possible to make superhero movies and these other blockbusters in a way that it wasn't before. Part of it is global markets reward these kind of movies. You make more money in China with, you know, with um, the the sort of Godzilla versus Kong or you know, Spider-Man No Way Home than you do with Terms of Endearment or even, or like historical epics or something. Um, Part of it is that a lot of talent migrates to TV and part of it is that adults really have become sort of more accustomed to bragging about how much they love children's entertainment than in the past, right? Like I think many more adults would be willing to say, oh, my favorite novel was the Harry Potter books, then their parents' generation would have been willing to say, man, I, you know, I just love Judy Bloom. She's my favorite, favorite novelist, meaning no disrespect to either Harry Potter or Judy Bloom. But Right. He's gone from, I mean, I, I, I'm like 25 years older than you are, but um, it, it's, uh, there was a time. You don't, you don't sound a day over <laughs> 40, 40, but your voice is so youthful. I can't, I, that's not possible. To use your wife's word, I, I sound decrepit. But um, <laughs> so, um, but I mean, there was a sort of way, way in which there was a kind of a cultural rite of passage. Okay, you're a certain age now. You don't have to uh, dwell in the world of children's entertainment. And, and, and people were eager, children were eager to be recognized as, old enough to see this, old enough to partake of this, uh, you know, old enough to, to watch The Godfather or whatever. You know, now it goes to the other direction. It's like the parents want to be allowed into the children's world. Uh, I think there's sort of less of that kind of desire to, to I mean, who, who needs adult entertainment when there's when there's Harry Potter? You get the last word. And, and, the, and the internet has also sort of, you know, I mean, to, to be really crude about it, right? You know, there, there was a certain way in which something like a sex scene in a grown-up movie was itself a kind of draw for, you know, the teenager sort of thinking of themselves as more mature. And sex scenes have basically, both not just romance and sex both, have evaporated from modern movies. Like if you watch the last five Disney movies, there's no love interests anymore. It's very weird. But but in even in sort of adult themed movies, there aren't, you know, there's just less sex than there used to be. And I can't help assuming that some of that has to do with sort of the ubiquity of pornography on the internet that like you're sort of like, oh, sex is something you get, you know, by itself (laughs) out, out here, sort of disconnected from the rest of adult life. Yeah, it's, Uh, it's a la carte. Um, yeah. We're going to have to stop there. But yes, totally. On that, on that note. On that note, yeah. Actually, <laughs> one of our regular guests, uh, R.S. Benedict, wrote a piece about this, how in the Mar- Marvel universe, everybody's very hot, but nobody has any sex. So I, I think, you know. Uh, I, read, I read that piece. Yeah. It's a good piece. So um, so the book is The Deep Places. It has nothing to do with what we were just talking about. It's a terrific book. Uh, and it's uh, also, it's readable in the sense that it's about 200 pages long. And uh, the, it just has glittering 
Ross Douthat writing on all of it. So we do encourage people to read this memoir of illness and discovery. Ross Douthat, don't be a stranger. Live in New Haven. Come on the show. I'm, I'm totally available. I, I will use you when I launch my campaign for the governorship of Connecticut on a eradicate all ticks platform. I can't so wait. I can't I'm, wait. I'm ready. We got to go. Bye-bye. That's why God, that's why God, that's why God made the moon.